Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Yeah, I was hoping to get to the really interesting and significant information about uh, Hillary Clinton and her campaign and what they were doing in 2016, trying to frame Donald J. Trump for being in league with Russia. The Durham investigation is rolling on, and we will get to that next segment. In fact, we'll break nice and early this segment to make sure we leave plenty of time. Uh, I've got some really good coverage of that. Uh, before we get there, though, and and not to not to you know. Not to beat it into the ground, but I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, A a young mom with two children uh, assaulted brutally Sacramento, California, leaving a park with her little kids when a crazed junkie, he's he's called an unhoused man in the local left-wing rag, but he's a junkie. Uh, beat this poor woman down in front of her children. You may have seen the headlines of a woman stabbed to death in New York. She was followed home by an unhinged junkie with a long criminal record. I'll bet we find out that this this uh, a piece of garbage who assaulted the mom in California, I'll bet we find out, you know, he's been arrested many times. Who knows? Christian Glazer, the ironically named junkie. <sighs> You know, it's crazy when we talk about this stuff. You know, we, we get plenty of emails. We get plenty of texts, that sort of thing, from uh, people who were on the street, uh, former drug addicts, people who are stu- struggling with drugs. And we have never, ever, ever, I don't think even a single time, and we get so much crazy stuff, you'd think there'd be at least an example or two of what I'm about to talk about, but I don't think we've gotten a single person say, no, you're wrong. Most of the people in the tent camps are actually hardworking people who just got a medical bill they couldn't pay. And they're, No, it's junkies. It's a drug problem. As uh, Michael Schellenberger put it, the very word homeless is uh, it's a propaganda term to make you think the primary problem is that these are poor people when it's not that at all. It's junkies. It's drug addicts. And we have a horrible problem with drugs in this country. If you're a compassionate person and you think the government ought to be in the business of saving as many lives as possible, okay, fine. We'll meet in the middle and and talk about that. But the lives that are being lost are from drug abuse, you know, uh, meth and heroin and most particularly fentanyl, which is now in everything. And whether it was Chinese manufacture more in the past or currently, the Mexican drug cartels are pouring this stuff into the country across our wide open borders. Are, are pretty damned open borders. Um, if you're really a compassionate person, then don't don't be uh, fooled. Don't be distracted by this uh, this soft headed lefty narrative that it's a housing problem. When even even a cursory investigation of the actual problem yields the inevitable conclusion that it's a drug problem. So if you're the compassionate sort who wants money spent in government programs and blah, 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 I would argue a lot of it is a waste of money. But um, I grant you that there is a pretty big crisis going on. We ought to be looking at what we can possibly do about it. At least be focused on the right crisis. Don't be distracted by the forces of I'm not sure what. A particular brand of the left that every problem comes down to redistribution of income. I think that's it. The only solution they like is higher taxes. 
taxing individuals and corporations and giving that money away. So if the problem isn't, you know, it can't be really remedied with that, they will change the problem. They'll they'll put a mask on the problem and call it a different problem so that it fits the tax people and take their money and give it away model. But anyway, I, you know, if you're a person of compassion, please, please, please spend 10 minutes looking into this and realizing the so-called homeless are drug abusers and we are systemically and systematically making it as easy and lucrative as possible to be a drug abuser. And then we could talk about the lunatic DAs and our our making crime uh, easy and making sure it pays and making sure there are no repercussions for it. Again, these brutal crimes against various women in just in the last couple of days. And there are dozens and dozens of these examples. I just don't want to bring everybody down. Um, but all of these people have criminal records. And you have to commit so many crimes, especially during the time of COVID, to get yanked off the street. I mean, didn't we all grow up with the notion that if we did something truly terrible, hurt another human being, hurt them badly? And 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 it's not like, you know, I think people who have not been a victim of crime fail to appreciate the fact that if you get your arm broken playing basketball or something like that, it hurts like crazy and it takes you a long time to get back and you got to rehab it and stuff like that. And maybe it aches every time it rains for the rest of your life. It's pretty bad. But there's not that emotional trauma of crime where your sense of safety, your sense of well-being, your your view of your community, you know, your, the locks on your doors, the, the stranger that you pass at night on the street, all of that changes in a way that is emotionally just terrible. And and so, you know, you can talk about the physical injuries of crime. There was, uh, speaking of broken arms, there was a, a, a middle school or, or high school coach chased by a mob of kids who didn't like uh, what he said to them. They chased him and beat him down and broke his arm. It was actually in Houston, which is a coincidence. We're going to play some tape in a second or two from Houston, a couple of clips. But, um, I mean, think about that trauma and how he will see students and people and everything differently. But I think we all grew up thinking, if if I do something truly terrible, if I victimize somebody in that way, I traumatize them emotionally and physically, I take their stuff, I break into their home. A friend of mine, victim of a, 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 a break-in while they were in the home, terrifying. Um, that's going to change their lives. Uh, we all thought that, wow, you, of course you get punished for that. I mean, if you shoplift, uh, you know... If you stick a ham down your pants at the local grocery store and get caught, could be slap on the wrist, you're picking up trash for a while, you pay a fine, whatever. But if you truly hurt somebody, you will be punished. Well, friends, that's not the case. All these cases around the country that we've we've touched on briefly, these people committed offense after offense, several of them, including violent offenses. And because of some of these bizarre, twisted notions of, of criminality and crime and punishment and or, well, we can't put them in jail because they might get the COVID. These people are still on the streets, creating more and more victims. I, I think, I feel like America is waking up rapidly to the effects of these policies. And I feel like we're all coming together and, and getting smart and realizing, wow, not only does this stuff not deliver what was promised to us, some sort of crime-free, uh, you know, post-racist uh, utopia, it's exactly the opposite. It's awful. It's a dystopia. So anyway, I hope that's the case. Came across this tape. This was fair, fair. Well, let me play it for you, first of all. This is the mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner, 
Uh, Michael, we're going to start with uh, clip number 40. Oh, just play clip 40. Talking about the COVID lockdown and crime. And let me just make my plea. Until the coronavirus is resolved, criminals take a break. Okay? Stay home. Okay? Stay home. And don't commit any crimes. And that way, they'll stay safe and out of jail. And police officers will stay safe and can go home to their families. Okay? So everybody chill. Crooks, criminals, you chill. Wait till the coronavirus is over. Okay? And then we'll all be okay. You know, I have a feeling Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner is a, is a decent enough human being. That's almost like a scene out of Idiocracy or Don't Look Up, which I found hilarious, by the way. I agree with Jack. It takes some shots at the right. It takes so many shots at the left. Oh, my God, it's merciless against the media and social media and, and the shallowness of society and clickbait, clickonomics, oh, and, and our tech overlords. It is so cynical in every direction. It was just, I thought it was fantastic. Anyway, um, that sounded like a scene out of that. The Houston mayor. Crooks, just chill. Just chill. Don't commit any crimes. All right? So everybody chill. Um, and a guy like him, who who's a city guy, who doesn't get... There are predators. There are people who don't... Either they don't get the social compact, or they're sociopaths, or they're so hardened. They don't care about the good of society, Mr. Mayor, sir. And in fairness, that was from uh, early on in the pandemic. That is not a recent tape. I just came across it and thought it was so astounding I would play it for you. So that was a while back when the COVID was kind of new and, and nobody was quite sure what to do. But can you imagine saying, are criminals don't commit crimes for a while? Okay? Okay. Beautiful. I just... Dreamland. Unicorn riders. I just don't get it. Crooks, criminals, you chill. You chill. I'll chill. So, chill on this. When we come back, and you're going to think I'm either yanking your chain or I'm trying to sell you something you shouldn't be buying, I think the Durham investigation into the origins of the Russian collusion hoax, I think it's going to, uh, the investigation is going to yield serious repercussions for Hillary Clinton and her people. Believe it or not, stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. His final target is democracy itself. One of the things that we were trying to explain to the press was this isn't just about hacking and leaking emails. This is about a larger information effort by the Russians. You have a president who, rather than reassuring the American public in American democracy, is trashing American democracy. Every day he's trashing American democracy. You may remember quotes like that during the 2016 campaign. You may remember Hillary and her campaign tweeting that computer scientists have apparently, and this is a quote, computer scientists have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the Trump organization to a Russian-based bank. Shared a statement from her campaign's senior foreign policy advisor, Jake Sullivan, current Biden guy. This could be the most direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow, said Sullivan. 
Computer scientists have uncovered a covert server linking the Trump organization to a Russian-based bank. Of course, none of that was true. Not a word. But what was actually going on? Steve Hilton, who we've talked to a number of times throughout the uh, the recent years, uh, did a great job on his Fox News Sunday evening show talking about this. I thought he laid it out really well, so we'll let him do the heavy lifting, then I will comment. Uh, clip number 61, please, Michael. But now we know, thanks to these documents, the factual background attached to a motion filed by Special Counsel John Durham as part of his indictment against former Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, that the Clinton campaign paid a tech firm to, quote, mine internet data to establish an inference, a narrative, tying then-candidate Trump to Russia. In Durham's words, this included, quote, non-public and or proprietary internet data. What does mining non-public and proprietary data mean? It means hacking. It means spying. And look at their targets, according to Durham. Quote, internet traffic pertaining to one, a particular healthcare provider. Two, Trump Tower. Three, Donald Trump Central Park West Apartment Building. And four, the executive office of the President of the United States. Yes, you heard that right. They hacked not just Trump Tower, but the White House. After Trump became president, they hacked the White House. These people who pose as defenders of democracy. How is that even possible? Now, it's worth noting that the couple of significant uh, uh, indictments so far from the Durham probe have dealt with various lawyers from the Clinton campaign and the law firm that uh, was uh, allied with it having lied about who they were working for when they hired various people to do various things. They were trying to cover up their relationship with the Clinton campaign. And what they are hiring were these hackers who were hacking into, again, even the White House computers or the executive office computers themselves in order to build some sort of Trump-Russia narrative and then lied to the authorities about it. Let's roll on with 62, Michael. There's a tech firm that maintains the Internet service supporting the president of the United States. The guy who's the current national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who just lost the election with Hillary, gets his campaign lawyer, Mark Elias, to hire that tech firm with the White House contract to hack into the White House to try and dig up dirt on the sitting president in an effort to show that the 2016 election was stolen by Russia. And that same guy, Jake Sullivan, is now running around hyping up war with Russia. Yeah, having dug back into the tweets at the time, and a lot of them have been deleted, but, you know, the Internet is forever. Uh, Jake Sullivan was taking the lead on describing the Trump-Russian collusion, when indeed it appears he was taking the lead in this hacking, uh, uh, you know, effort simultaneous with or just during and after the whole Steele dossier which was hired by the Clinton campaign and relied entirely on Russian sources. So they were actually colluding with the Russians while they were hacking, uh, which is just crazy. Uh, One more clip, 63. How can we believe a word he says? Look what he said in October 2016 when he was working for Hillary Clinton. This could be the most direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow. It raises even more troubling questions in light of Russia's masterminding of hacking efforts that are clearly intended to hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign. Oh, troubling questions about Russia's masterminding of hacking efforts to hurt the Clinton campaign. He burbled when at that exact moment he himself was masterminding hacking efforts to hurt the Trump campaign by making up stuff about Russia. 
The utter shamelessness of it is just staggering. And now he's out there just this Friday going on about how Russia is going to invade Ukraine on Wednesday. Who knows where this will end up legally for Jake Sullivan, but there is no question, none at all, that he should immediately step down as national security advisor. So a motion uh, was made by the Durham uh, investigation Friday. Interesting that it was Friday on my birthday, which was very nice, by the way. Took a long walk with my bride in the woods, and we went out for sushi. It's fabulous. Anyway, uh, so this motion comes out Friday. And it focused on potential conflicts of interest related to the representation of former Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman. You may have heard that news, that name rather, in, in other Durham news. Who's, he's been charged with making a false statement to a federal agent. He's pleaded not guilty. The indictment against Sussman said he told then-FBI General Counsel James Baker in September of 2016, just before the election, that he was not doing work, quote, for any client. When he requested and held a meeting in which he presented, quote, purported data and white papers that allegedly demonstrated a covert communications channel between the Trump organizations and Alpha Bank, which has ties to the Kremlin, a section titled Factual Background Reveals Sussman, quote, had assembled and conveyed the allegations to the FBI on behalf of at least two specific clients, including a technology company uh, and the Clinton campaign. This guy is on paper having been hired by the Clinton campaign to dig up dirt and report it to the FBI, and John Durham is on it. If you can't hang around, grab the rest of the show later via podcast, armstrongandgetty.com. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. A Lombardi Trophy for Los Angeles. 23-20 is the final in Super Bowl 56. The Los Angeles Rams are world champions. I love the term world champions. Uh, Rams fans, hey la, hey la, congratulations. The Rams of Los Angeles beat the, the Bengals of Cincinnati for the Super Bowl trophy yesterday. It was fabulous. Uh, after... I saw which numbers I had in the little uh, squares uh, pool I was in. The only thing I cared about was whether my numbers came up. I totally lost interest in who was going to win the game. Uh, Lon He Chen joins us. Lon He is a candidate for California State Controller. David and Diane Steffi, fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, Director of Domestic Policy Studies at Stanford University. And are you a Rams fan, Lon He? You know, Joe, I'm a Raiders fan. Oh, I'm a yeah, Raiders I... fan. But, but I, I will say this. After the Raiders left the playoffs, I, I do admit to rooting for the Rams. My wife called me a Fairweather fan, and that's what you want to call me? Fine. But I was rooting for the Rams last night. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they got a great team. They they played well. They won. Um, so, uh, although it was interesting, I think, you know, if you wanted to really get geek out on economics and, and that sort of thing, it was funny. We had the, the, the grid pool where they randomly draw, and I had the three and the seven, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and once that got started, the only thing anybody cared about was their number coming up. Incentives and yeah. disincentives, you know, it's just that's the way societies work. Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, I think a, a number of people took bets on the game last night. And if I recall correctly, they took bets at the Bengals plus four, in which case everybody was happy, right? If they took the uh-huh. Bengals, they still won money. 
And, you know, they didn't care about the outcome of the game, you know, whatever. The Rams fans were happy. So who, who knows? But you're right. Incentives have a funny way of altering the way that we use sports or anything else in culture, for that matter. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so speaking of uh, domestic uh, policy, which is your uh, bailiwick, uh, I thought it was notable, and Jack and I were anticipating this uh, with uh, great excitement. The state mandate, the, the county mandate, the stadium mandate, you must be wearing masks. And there was not a masked face in the place. Just completely ignored. Which brings us to COVID policy and the weird cultural aspect of it. How some people, it's become who they are, and maybe it was anti-Trumpness. Uh, maybe it's just a different worldview. Some people disdain the COVID to the point of ignoring its its existence, and a lot of us are 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 in between. Have you talked about this with your classes at all? What do you make of the whole thing? Yeah, you know, it, it is interesting. Uh, I think a number of people do feel caught in between what has become a deeply cultural battle. Uh, you know, it's not just about kind of what would be. And, and by the way, the, the funny thing is both sides talk about following the science, mm-hmm. whatever sure. that means. And yeah. that phrase has become so caught up in this cultural conversation. But really, it's it's so so little of this now, it seems to me, is about what is the actual data telling us? What is the data we need to be having to make smart decisions? And instead of that, it's, it's gotten into the same shirts and skins conversation we have about seemingly every other topic uh, in our society. And because COVID has been so front and center at our, in our public consciousness for, gosh, I guess two years now, uh, or almost two years, we sort of feel like, okay, all, all, all that really matters is what are people on my side saying versus, you know, what the actual reality of the situation is. So it, it's unfortunate. And I think one of the things I'll just say is, what has driven a lot of this is the hypocrisy of so many policymakers. And I think that is what angers people and drives this into the cultural realm is when they don't see policymakers and politicians following the same rules that they purport to to make everyone else follow or want to make everyone else follow. You know, I think, well, number one, you're absolutely right. Uh, secondly, uh, my mind is turning to the governor's race in Virginia, won by Glenn Youngkin, substantially, and 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 uh, the polling showed this at the polls uh, on the topic of get the kids back in school. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the culture war, critical race theory stuff as much as maybe I would like it to be. It was just about the I want the kids in school, and the Republican says the kids are going to get back in school. Now Virginia has that weird off off year. Uh, election, I think that's going to be a bigger, uh, a bigger cause, a bigger motivator of votes than a lot of the analysts I see on TV have recognized as yet. Uh, yeah, because parents have long memories when it comes to these things, you know, and uh, the, the the conversation around getting kids back in school that that conversation in so many places was clearly not driven by the best data and the best evidence, because what was abundantly clear was that keeping kids out of school was creating long term uh, damage, not just to them, but to our entire economy. And it was hurting the kids who could least afford to be hurt. Right. Uh, kids who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, kids from often minority backgrounds. Those were the kids who were being hurt the most by these policies. And, and, you know, it's, it's going to take a long time for people to forget. And the other piece of it, Joe, is that in so many places, there, there is still a little bit of a conversation about, well, 
you know, should kids be in school? I, I, I don't know if kids should be in school. And it's like, right. no, 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 no. We've had this conversation already on, on this issue. I think it's fairly clear where the equities come out. But the fact that it continues to be a topic of conversation in some parts of, for example, California, where I live, I think parents are aggravated that we're even having this conversation. Why are we even having this conversation still? Right. And I think the voices of those at the extreme, and I don't want to call it left because it's not left or right, but the extreme no, COVID yeah. caution thing, they're, they're um, you know, overpopulated in the media and, and on Twitter and on college campuses and, and certainly teachers unions and that sort of thing. So I think their voices are disproportionately loud. But the proof, and you mentioned this, the absolute proof of how strange and cultural this is, is you have uh, the children being heard en masse. Uh, by not being in schools, being masked all the time, denied contact with, with others, um, and especially poor children, children of color. And yet it's the left that was trying so hard to, to keep that up. And that's just so strange to me. But anyway, uh, one, uh, one of the more interesting aspects of this is, and, and I could geek out on political theory, but I've learned through my life, Lonnie, nobody wants to hear it. And they roll their eyes and they get glazed. Look, but uh, I can't remember. Somebody wrote a brilliant piece. They were talking about Gavin Newsom of, of California and how he fixated on one thing, and that is COVID infections, and ignored Drug addiction and emotional health and children's development, children's learning, just and acted as though the one concern was the only concern. And the point they made is that's the opposite of leadership. Real leadership is making those difficult, weighing all of those things and making the difficult decisions, how much weight to give each and what policy to pursue. Um, what's your take on that topic in general and, and what you've seen, whether in California or around the country, the ability of politicians or, or leaders to weigh everything? Yeah, uh, I would say generally policy in our country right now is being driven by pretty myopic concerns. People are kind of looking at what's right in front of them and trying to make decisions based on that. And in the case of most politicians, and I, I would certainly put Governor Newsom in this category, he, he's going to be responsive to whatever political motivation is directly in front of him. And I think, unfortunately, in too many cases, it, it, he, he has been sort of the trailing indicator rather than the leading indicator. And not, not to pick on him, I think there are other governors, by the way, who have fallen into the same problem. But what we see in California in particular now is, you know, so today, apparently, there's going to be some announcements, as you noted earlier, about uh, a, a shift in how the state handles th- this issue of COVID policy, going from a pandemic phase to an endemic phase, whatever that means. And it's like this conversation was one we probably should have been having several months ago to prepare people for what was to happen. But politically, I think the governor felt like, well, listen, I'm getting a lot of pressure to change course. And so now I'm going to change course. And it has very little to do with, okay, what does, what what do we know based on where this thing is headed? What do we know based on the data? We're not seeing any of that conversation. And there's no transparency, Joe, at all in the decision making. I think that's the other thing that frustrates people. It's like, tell us what it is that you're basing your policy decisions on. And, 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 And then we can prepare for it. But now it seems random. I mean, I remember back during the height of the pandemic, they were, they were handing out all of these edicts and restrictions from Sacramento. Even Democrats in his own party were frustrated that they didn't have transparency into what he was doing. So I think that's the other part of the problem. It's not just about near-term, short-term, uh, or short-term, long-term. It's about 
why are you making the decisions you're making? Give us an explanation, and then we can evaluate it. Right. It's, again, the opposite of leadership. I'm reminded of one of Jack's favorite expressions. I can't remember who said it, but uh, uh, tell me which direction the people are going, and I shall get in front of them, for I am their leader. Um, and yeah. it's got it's got that feel. Is it that just that the the populist politics of the moment? If there's no slogan, there's no policy. If you can't explain it in a very brief, exciting way, it it doesn't happen. Why? How have our how's our leadership gotten so dumb? Did they just panic over COVID or what? Uh, I, I don't know if that they panicked over it. I, I I do think that's part of it. I would say the other part of it is that they they forgot what it meant to lead. They forgot that leading sometimes means making really tough decisions that are not going to be popular with parts of, of your own political base. I mean, that's really what, what the reality of this is, is that you have so much pandering to your own base, so much pandering to your own side. And donors. You fail yeah. to remember. Yeah, you just fail to remember, hey, listen, you know, I was elected by all the people of my state or all the people of my congressional district or whatever, my, all the people of my city or school board, whatever it is. And, and, and instead of doing that, all they're doing is they're listening to the loudest voices on their own side. And I think that's what that's why people are so fed up with politics. And, and I understand I talk to a lot of people now as a candidate. I talk to a lot of people about what what they're fed up about when it comes to politics. And that is overwhelmingly the thing I hear is it's like all these politicians want to hear is what their side is telling them. And they're not willing to have a broader perspective on what it takes to get things done. And I think that is a big, big problem we have in our politics right now. Uh, which, you know, that's an old conversation. It's absolutely true. I've been hearing it my whole life. And, and back in the day of, of very limited government, that was frustrating. But it's not it's become so much more significant in a an era of emergency powers, even though by the very definition yeah. of an emergency in a lot of states' constitutions, this isn't one. Um it's so overreaching. They can just order the kids to stay home from schools. And so now suddenly it's it's um, it's a lot more significant than it used to be anyway. Yeah. And you, yeah, I think you've seen it in many states. You're absolutely right. The governors and other executives use executive power as opposed to doing what they're supposed to do, which is actually pass laws. Go to the legislature. Make sure that you're doing things the right way. Now, I'll just use executive power. It's easier. I can just tell people what I want to do and do it. Yeah, that's that's not a good trend, and we're seeing it from you know from the the White House on down into state houses and even even counties. But uh, Lonnie Chen, so much to discuss. We can't wait to talk again. Lonnie, he's candidate for California State Controller. Uh, David and Diane Steffi, fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, director of Domestic Policy Studies at Stanford University, and in his free time, he roots for the Raiders. Uh, Lonnie, great to talk to you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. All right, see you later. That's I hear a resume like that, and I think, where does all my time go? You know, to quote the great Joe Walsh, they say I'm lazy, but it takes all my time. How do you find time for all stuff? Anyway, always enjoy chatting with uh, Lon. He, gosh, we need to touch on, have you heard about all the Americans playing hockey for the Chinese communists? Wait a minute, how did that, what's going on there? We'll talk about that next. Armstrong and Getty. You know, Russia has been tossed out because they're cheaters and they get caught doping every time. So they're officially not in the Olympics. But you know who's in the Olympics? Russia. (laughs) Not as Russia. 
They call it's the Russian Olympic Committee. <laughs> when, when Putin invades Ukraine, he's going to say, it wasn't us, it was the Russian Military Committee. <laughs> I, we're not involved. Do you know why people were laughing at that? It's because it's laughable. That wasn't even a joke. He just related the facts and people guffawed. Appropriately so. And did you hear that that uh, 15-year-old skater gal? In a momentous decision, the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled today in favor of the 15-year-old Russian figure skating superstar Valieva. And against uh, the the, the, the anti-doping people, dismissing the provisional suspension that she otherwise would have faced, she used a banned heart medication. She doesn't have a heart condition. It it ups your uh, oxygen and blood flow and stuff like that. Uh, The panel reasoned that the six-week delay from the time her sample was collected to the time she was informed of the positive result was not her fault and noted her special status as a protected person under world anti-doping rules because she's not yet 16. In particular, the panel considering that preventing the athlete from competing at the Olympic Games would cause her irreparable harm in these circumstances. I know what you're thinking. I'm reading your mind. We're tracking. You're thinking, maybe I spaced out and didn't hear what Joe actually said. No, those were a bunch of words strung together that don't really say anything. Preventing her from competing at the Olympic Games would cause her irreparable harm in these circumstances. Using banned substances and getting booted out of the games, having won a gold medal would do her irreparable harm. Yeah, that's the idea. That's the idea. And it's, you know, in a weird way, this reminds me of some of the, you know, super lefty Marxist DAs around the country who are like, no, you put somebody in jail, it's going to, like, screw up their lives. So that's the one thing we can't do, even though it's in the law. We cannot prosecute our way out of the desperation (laughs) that we have. Out of Russians doing drugs for the Olympics. Uh, How how odd. Well, I, I read a couple of editorials. I think I shared at least one with you. Last week, saying, if this chick is not booted out, the Olympics have become a joke. Well, you heard those people guffawing. The Olympics are a joke. Unbelievable. So, I, I admit, I was really hard on the uh, the uh, uh, Goo. Uh, Elena Goo, was that her name? Yeah. The American-born competing for the Chinese aerial skier gal. Partly because NBC and China and various corporations are trying as hard as they can to turn her into the next groovy sex symbol who sells us all sorts of products. And the fact that she, you know, went uh, went Chinese communist on us because she sees that as a at least well a more lucrative market and I was going to say at least as lucrative no it's more far more lucrative uh she made her choice she made her bed she's going to lie in it with the communist chinese and it kind of flew under my radar i'd heard mention that there were a bunch of americans playing hockey for the chinese team uh, but i didn't know anything about it, it hadn't gotten much attention and yeah sure enough two thirds of the chinese team are americans and and uh and canadians some of whom, uh, most of whom have arguably some Asian heritage, maybe. Um, uh, some of them had agreed to live in China for several years. Long story short, China's got a decent enough women's hockey program, but they got no hockey players to be on the dude's side. And since they're the host country, they automatically qualify for every sport if they want to put 
a team in there or individuals in there. And they had nobody for hockey, and they knew it. And so they recruited minor leaguers from around the goal, around the world, rather. They put these guys together, and they've been laboring hard to become a competent hockey team. Um, they, how competent? Eh. They lost to a bunch of American college players, eight nothing. So you know they're no great shakes. Um, but the Chinese uh, gave them different names. Jeremy Smith, for instance, is Jairuimi Shimisi, according to the L.A. Times. Jake Chelios, son of Chris Chelios, NHL legend, chose Jaiki Kaliosi, and Spencer Fu became Fu Zhang. And so they've been playing for the Chinese for years, trying to grow the game in China. You know, it's interesting. Am I a hypocrite? Am I inconsistent? Is there something wrong with me? I'm not as stirred up about a bunch of journeyman minor league never will sniff the NHL guys getting an offer to play international hockey under China's flag. It 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 stinks. It's rotten. They are colluding with the enemy. Hundred percent. It's true. I guess there's there's no denying the facts. Um. So strange. I think this will become unthinkable. Within five or ten years. Um, it's pretty awful now. Most evil regime on earth, and they're skating with the flag on their chest. It's ugly. If you ever miss a chunk, grab the podcast later. We put it up. Strong and Getty.